Amen. All right. Um, so we're back in First Corinthians. How many of you guys are like sick of First Corinthians? I hope no one. How dare you? I knew Audrey would. So, um, well, we've got, hey, we've got 13 more chapters, Audrey. So you got to sit tight. But, um, but I invite you guys to turn with me uh, back into First Corinthians chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 18 to 23. First Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 to 23. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes in chapter 3, verses 18 to 23. He says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever heard of the phrase, what's mine is yours? And I think all of you guys are like, well, duh, like, all of my parents' possessions are mine. Uh, their car is mine. Their food is mine. Their money is mine. Their faith is mine. But I would wager that you actually really don't know what that phrase really means until you actually get married. Because I definitely did not understand what that meant until I actually married Megan. Um, um, because before I got married, I was, I was seriously a scrub. Uh, I, I've told you guys this before, but I used to live in uh, Pastor David's backyard. And uh, it was like a one-bedroom apartment that was above the garage. That wasn't scrubby so much because it was really nice. Uh, but it wasn't mine. Um, I paid David Lee, David Lee to live there. I didn't own any of the furniture that he had furnished. Um, all that he, I had was an old mattress that had belonged to Corey Oyang. And I'm not even sure if that mattress really belonged to him. I don't even know if it was his. And so because I'm also a cheap date... Um, for my meals, I used to make one large pot of curry that would last me, and I would just try to stretch it, so I will just eventually just keep adding water to stretch it to eight <laughs> meals, okay? Uh, no lie. And so my favorite fast food was, uh, Yoshi- it still is, actually, Yoshinoya, and, um, you know, um, and I, I still love it, and um, my, my seminary friend who, who does not like Yoshinoya, he, he described uh, the meat of the combo, the, the, the beef in the combo as... Uh, dirty rags. And I'm like, how dare you? I'm offended. Still offended. Um, but, but getting married to Megan was a complete game, change, game changer. Uh, by virtue of my marriage to Megan, I had inherited not a one-bedroom apartment, but a house, her childhood house. Um, by virtue of my mar- marriage to Megan, I eat three healthy, nutritious meals every day, uh, as opposed to one super healthy, super nutritious meal that would last me the entire week. Uh, by, by virtue of my marriage to Megan, uh, I also inherited her debt. Just kidding. She is debt-free. And so kids, choose wisely. Okay, guys? Uh, but by virtue of my marriage to Megan, uh, what is hers is also mine. But more importantly than all the stuff that I got from our marriage, um, I had her. The ultimate possession was Megan herself. In fact, I'm, I'm starting to understand more and more what the Apostle Paul means when he says that marriage is, is kind of like a mystery in Ephesians. Um, because why Megan married me is a profound mystery. I have no idea why. I bring nothing to the table. Um, all that belongs to Megan belongs to me. Now, why do I mention this story? It's because though I, I, um, the, through Megan, I have everything. Uh, aside from adoption, the, the analogy of marriage is the closest picture of what it means to belong to God. And the Apostle Paul is trying to show us here that since we belong to God, 
all that God uh, has is ours. And this is what the, the Corinthian church failed to realize. All, as those who belong to God, what was God's was also theirs. Here's what the Apostle Paul wants us to see. If you have been following along in our First Corinthians series, uh, it's nearly impossible to forget that the Apostle Paul for the past three chapters has been talking about divisions in the church. As I mentioned before, uh, the idea of divisions is so prevalent in First Corinthians that it takes up 25% of the entire letter. <clears throat> And it's in this passage that the Apostle Paul hammers the final nail, the final nail in the coffin of, on divisions in the church. In dividing the church over specific people, specific hobbies, specific interests, the Apostle Paul is exposing just how myopic their vision of God and their status as his church really was. It wasn't that they had only Paul or Apollos or even Cephas. It wasn't even that they had the whole church. They had the entire universe. That was how myopic their vision was. Uh, and to kind of drill this home a little bit, when my niece was still in town, she had brought her lovey from Texas all the way to California. Now, if you don't know what a lovey is, um, a lovey is kind of like a uh, soft object that babies use to soothe themselves to sleep. It's a stuffed animal. Uh, or doll or blanket. And it's also usually super gross and super smelly because kids are just like, they, they sleep with it. Uh, it's really, it's, uh, they, they drool on it. Uh, they rub their snot covered faces on it. And so when we knew our niece was coming into town, Megan, you know, bought all this stuff for her to play with. Uh, she bought markers, construction paper, uh, snacks, new toys, even. Uh, we, I think like resubscribed to a new subscription to like Netflix or something. Our, our nieces had, or uh, Peyton, our niece, had aunties and uncles, but when she got here, all that she wanted was her sick and disgusting lovey, despite the fact that the world was her oyster, despite the fact that she had aunties and uncles who would literally drop all that they were doing just to play with her. She was myopic of what she had truly had. Now, what about us? Could it be possible that we possess a spiritual myopia, uh, if you guys aren't familiar with that term, a spiritual nearsightedness, just like the Corinthians. Well, how do we know? Well, when you walk through the front doors of Lighthouse Community Church, and when you size yourself up with the other high schoolers here, what is the criteria that you look for to determine where you belong or where others belong? What markers do you look for? Is it the types of clothes or brands that people wear or have a dress? Is it the way that people talk? Is it their intellect or their knowledge? Is it the same school that you go to uh, or the same interest that you have? Is it the same kind of Bible that you have? Is it the pastors or sermons that they listen to or the kinds of books that they read? What do you look for in community? What do you look for? What are the criteria that you look for in community? And however you answer that question will reveal the spiritual myopia of your heart. Why? Because we have overlooked and lost sight of what really unites a community together. It isn't because of how someone dresses or how they look or what they say or what kind of family that they belong to. It is because of Jesus the Messiah. And so if divisiveness exists in this high school group, if divisiveness exists in the church as a whole, it is only because Jesus' followers have become far too exclusive, nearsighted, and narrow-minded. And so in our passage tonight, the Apostle Paul gives us an antidote to spiritual myopia. But first, the Apostle Paul shows us that a people centered on Messiah must know the cause of 
uh, spiritual myopia before knowing the cure for spiritual myopia. And so first, the cause of spiritual myopia. Look at, take a look at verse 18 again. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Now, this verse is actually a recap of all that the Apostle Paul has been talking about since chapter 1, verse 18. Now, I want you guys to take a look back there just really quickly. Take a look at chapter 8, uh, chapter 1, rather. Chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. And in those two verses, the Apostle Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now, the question is, why does the Apostle Paul circle back to this passage? And here's what I think he's doing. The the Apostle Paul is using a literary technique called an inclusio, where he is bookending what he had started in chapter 1, verse 18, with chapter 3, verse 18. Now, the question is, why, why the repetition? Because from here on out, the Apostle Paul is driving the final nail of divisions into the coffin. This is going to be the Apostle Paul's final warning to the Corinthians about divisions. And when this is the Apostle Paul's final warning, then we better listen. And in, in, in the three chapters we covered so far, the, the, the 70 verses that we've studied in 1 Corinthians, it is only in this passage that the Apostle Paul gives two direct imperatives. Why does the Apostle Paul wait three chapters to utter two direct imperatives? It's because the Apostle Paul, for the past three chapters, has been laying the groundwork <clears throat> for the root cause of divisions occurring in the Corinthian church. And the root cause of the divisions in the church The root cause of spiritual nearsightedness in this high school group is spiritual, is is self-deception. Self-deception. Take a look back. I I want you guys to see what self-deception does. I want you guys to to see three ways self-deception leads to spiritual myopia. The first is that self-deception believes that the problem is out there and not within. So I want you guys to take a look back at verse 18 of chapter 3. The Apostle Paul writes again, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Now what the Apostle Paul wants us to see is that the danger of self-deception isn't only out in the world, but within us. Notice how the Apostle Paul says, if anyone among you, in other words, he is locating where self-deception lies among you. The Apostle Paul doesn't say if anyone outside of the church thinks that he is wise. The danger of self-deception is that it's among you, not just outside of you. Now, if you'll remember from our previous message in 1 Corinthians, in just a verse before, the Apostle Paul writes that if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Who is any? Who is the anyone here? Well, verse 18 explains verse 17. In verse 17, the anyone is among you. In other words, the greatest enemy of God's temple, as we've seen, aren't non-Christians. They're Christians. The problem isn't out there, but in here. You see, I think many of us think that what will destroy the church today is the irrelevance of the gospel for everyday life. Maybe some of us think that uh, what will destroy the maybe perhaps the integrity of the gospel or the church is the seemingly uh, contradictory scientific evidence against the church or against the Bible. Some of us think that what will destroy the church is 
the godlessness or immorality of our classmates and our culture. And while these are legitimate concerns, these are not what will tear the church apart. What will tear the church apart, ultimately, is the church. It is the people sitting around you. Self-deception is content with pointing the finger at others, at the people sitting around you, at the non-Christians, at a common enemy, but never at ourselves. It's always the other person's fault and never our own. But what the Apostle Paul wants us to see is that we ourselves contribute to the divisions occurring in the church. And so maybe you feel like no one talks to you during high school group. And I'm sorry to hear that. But is there any way that you could be contributing to the problem? Do you put yourself out there? Do you reciprocate in conversation? Do you say more than just yes or no answers? Do you foster bitterness and resentment toward them? Or maybe on the other hand, maybe you're the person who chooses not to talk to certain people or hang out with certain individuals. And we give reason after reason for why we don't. It's because they don't talk much. Uh, Maybe it's because they're awkward or we just don't get along. We don't go to the same school. Maybe it's because of how they respond. Or it's all because of them and it's never about me. When there are problems in community, self-deception leads us to believe that it is only the other person or the other group's fault for offending us or ignoring us. If you want to know how to ruin this high school group right here, if you want to, want, if you want to know how to ruin this church, if you want to know how to split a church, all it takes is simply to point the finger at the other person without pointing the finger at yourself. It is all their fault. It is because of how they look or dress. It's because they don't know enough. It's because they're awkward. It's because they ignored you. It's because of what they did, but not ever what you did. This, that is where spiritual myopia begins. That's all it takes. The second way. Self-deception thinks that they are something when they are nothing. Self-deception thinks that they are something when they are nothing. Take a look again at verse 18. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Now, the Apostle Paul says something similar in chapter six, uh, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 3, which I think gives clarity to what he's actually saying here in verse 18. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 3, he says, For if anyone thinks that he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This is the message that the Apostle Paul has been harping on for the past three chapters. In chapter 3, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, in verse 7, he says, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God which gives the growth. The point is that we are nobodies. We are nobodies. Now, is it possible for some of us to have advantages over others? Well, of course. Maybe you have a physical advantage over others. Maybe you're more athletic or taller or whatever. Maybe you have a familial advantage over others. Maybe your parents serve at the church. Maybe you have an academic advantage over others. Maybe you have a spiritual advantage over others. Maybe you know more. Maybe you grew up in the church your whole life. And I want you to think about those advantages. All those advantages is grace. It's absolute grace. But the possession of grace does not mean that you were worthy for grace. Because I think a lot of us think that just because we received certain advantages meant that we deserved those advantages. But the possession of grace does not mean that you were worthy for grace. What you have over others is grace, but it doesn't make you better. 
You might look at the non-Christian at your schools or that annoying, annoying person sitting next to you and think to yourself, what is wrong with this person? Why do they act this way? Now, while you may have spiritual advantages over them, while you are a Christian, it does not change the fact that you are in need of grace as much as they are. If you think that all of life and all of your relationships with other people is a comparison game with them, then you will be blinded to your greatest need. Your greatest need isn't to be better. Your greatest need is redemption. Because the more you compare yourself to others, I don't know if you guys realize this, the more that you do so, the more you place yourself further and further away from the grace and mercy of God. Isn't that the reason why Jesus says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Some of us have grown up all of our lives believing that our upbringing makes us better than others. Some of us have grown up all of our lives working harder than anyone else. Some of us have grown up loving that we are more gifted or smarter or godlier than other people. But when we hear that none of that counts before God, that irritates us. Which is why self-deception leads us to believe that we are better than others when we really aren't. And it's not, and it's only a matter of time until we forget that all the people whom God chooses are leaders, are, are, are losers and nobodies. The third, the third self-deception. Self-deception only looks at the surface, but not at the heart. Self-deception only looks at the surface, but not at the heart. Take a look at the first half of verse 19. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness, is folly with God. Now, if you were to literally translate that verse, it would be translated as, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness in the sight of God. It means that the criteria that we look for in people is different than the criteria that God looks for in people. I had asked in the beginning of the the message, what criteria do you look for in others to determine where you belong or where other people belong? And I want you to remember what those criteria are. What this verse is trying to show us is that God blows whatever criteria that you have or had of people out of the water. The problem isn't sim- is simply that we haven't looked deep enough. Take a look at the rest of verse 19 to 20. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Now, the Apostle Paul quotes from two different passages in the Old Testament. The first is from, John chap- is from Job chapter 5 and the other is from Psalm 94. And what the Apostle Paul is trying to show us is that while we are impressed by the outward appearances of others, God simply isn't. I don't think it's merely coincidental that the Apostle Paul chooses two quotes from the Old Testament. What man looks at outward appearances, God looks at the heart. That's a prominent theme in the Old Testament. Does that ring a bell? I want you guys to put your finger in 1 Corinthians. And just for a moment, I want you guys to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And I don't have enough time to cover this entire chapter, but there are a key, a couple specific verses that I want us to, to specifically key in on. And as you're turning there to set the stage, as you're turning there, God has rejected Saul as king over Israel. Saul has disqualified himself as king because despite the fact that people love him, despite the fact that he is good looking, despite the fact that he is a very charismatic individual, Saul 
has disobeyed God, and God therefore has rejected Saul as king. So God sends his prophet Samuel to anoint and choose his next king. And I want you guys to take a look at verses 4 to 5 of 1 Samuel chapter 16. Verses 4 to, uh, I'm sorry, 4 to 6, not 4 to 5. That doesn't matter anyway, I'm just going to read through it. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord Yahweh commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Verse 6, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the, the Lord's anointed is before him. Among one of Jesse's sons is the next king. And with only a look, Samuel has an immediate intuitive hunch about whom God is going to anoint as the next king of Israel. But take a look at verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now here's what's interesting. Samuel wasn't just some regular schmuck. He wasn't just some regular dude. There are two books in the Old Testament that are named after him. Samuel was a prophet of God and the last judge of Israel who began his service for God during his childhood. And if Samuel, the prophet of God, can be fooled by first impressions, what about us? You can be the most mature Christian and be fooled by first, second, third impressions. But we can understand Samuel's thought process, right? The text says that God prohibited Samuel from looking at his appearance or his height of stature, meaning that there were physical qualities and traits that made Eliab look attractive to the human eye. But isn't it funny how human nature is the same 4,000 years ago as it is today? Self-deception usually confuses giftedness with godliness. So many of us lean toward what, toward what is attractive. So many of us lean toward what is cool or edgy. So many of us lean toward the extroverts. We want the funny or the likable. We want the charismatic. We want the well-connected. We want the beautiful and the popular. We want the status. And one thing that I think a lot of us confuse things with is so many of us confuse ability with integrity. Why is it so much easier for us to curate an image than to actually cultivate godliness? And what this little story in 1 Samuel reminds us is that if we are mesmerized by people, God just simply isn't. When we look at people, God looks at the other way. If we are mesmerized by the skill of others, God is not. If we are mesmerized by the eloquence of others, God is not. If we are mesmerized by the counsel of other people, God is not amazed. Now, just to clarify, we must never conclude that God opposes good looks or wise counsel as if ugliness or bad counsel are the absolute criteria for God's choice and call the fact that the the author of 1 Samuel bothers to tell us that David was easy on the eyes and was handsome discourages us from hating on the popular, the beautiful, or the smart. 
But here's the main point. External appearance, outward gifting, no amount of charisma or lack thereof qualifies nor disqualifies. The point is that to God, it doesn't matter. What matters is what God sees in the heart. And that is, I think, so refreshing for a lot of us because it means that God is not a a slave to our expectations or what we think is important. God does not bend to our superficial whims. It means that there is no possible way for us to ever manipulate or to coerce God God into doing something that we want him to do. It means that there is no possible way to earn God's favor. There is no amount of church attendance, no amount of time spent reading your Bible or praying, no amount of theology that you know. There are no requirements. And in fact, there's only one place in the Bible that explicitly tells us where God turns his gaze toward. I want you guys to take, uh, turn your Bible to Isaiah chapter 66. I want you guys to turn to Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. This is what will get the attention of God. If you want to grab the attention of God, listen closely to this verse right here. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. This is Yahweh speaking. This is God speaking. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Trembles at my word. If you want to get God's attention, the only requirement is to come to the end of yourself daily to totally surrender and to take God's word seriously. That is what will get the attention of God. So I want to ask you again, what are the criteria that you look for in community? What are we looking for in people? Bless you guys. Are we looking for their godliness or only their gifts? Are we looking for kindness and joy or only their looks or their humor? Are we looking for patience or are we looking only for efficiency? Are we interested in people who actually submit their lives to and tremble at the word of God? Isn't it so classic of God to choose the unlikeliest person to bring about his salvation for the whole world? Should it surprise us that humanity's representative, the Messiah, whom God chooses is none other than the man who was despised and rejected by the men and women that he came to save? Have we forgotten that the Jesus that we claim to love, the Jesus that we claim to follow, the Jesus that we claim to sing about, the Jesus that we claim to serve, Have we forgotten that this Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him? And isn't it so classic of God who knew what was in the heart of man to enter into his creation and to die for the sins of man? The fact that God became a man should tell us something about what humans clearly value and what God clearly values. Self-deception only looks at the surface, but God looks at the heart. And as a people who belong to God, we must see what God sees and desire what God desires. And it is only when we don't that our vision narrows and becomes myopic.
And so we saw the cause of spiritual myopia, which was self-deception. What is its cure? What is its cure? The cure for self, for, for spiritual myopia. Now I want you guys to flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I want you guys to take a look at verse 21 again. Verse 21. Chapter 3, verse 21. So this is the second imperative. So let no one boast in men. So in light of all that we have heard so far, that God looks at the heart and not on outward appearances, therefore, in light of all that, verse 21, let no one boast in men. The word for boast here is the same word for boast that we saw earlier in chapter 1, verse 31, where the Apostle Paul writes, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And if it's true that the one who boasts must boast in the Lord, the, the opposite must also be true. In verse 21, he puts it in the, in the negative. Let no one, let no one boast in man. You would think that after three chapters of Paul telling us to not boast in men, that we would get the message. But he's like, nope. But I think the very fact that he is so repetitious reminds us how easy it is for all of us to boast in human institutions, in people, in pastors, in biblical counselors, in organizations, in brands, in clubs, in schools, whatever else you guys boast in. I have no idea what you guys boast in. But to boast in man is a dead end. Not only because people will fail you, because of one final reason. The Apostle Paul gives one final reason. And I think this reason is important. It's the cure for spiritual myopia. I want you guys to take a look at the, the last half of verse 21. It says, for all things are yours. For all things are yours. The reason why we must not boast in people why we must take care not to show favoritism towards certain people in this high school group or even in this church, isn't that we have too high of a view of God's gifts, but too low. Divisions only exist in this high school group. Wanting to be liked by this person, wanting to be in this part of the crowd or that part of the crowd, because we have overlooked the objective fact and reality that as Christians, everything And the whole universe belongs to you. The the world is literally your playground and your, your, your oyster. I don't know if you understand just how scandalous or expansive it is to belong to Jesus. What is, what does he actually mean by all? We'll take a look at verse 22. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. All are yours. All of God's servants are yours. All of your pastors are yours. So there's no reason for you to divide over one specific pastor or to desire one specific pastor or this other specific pastor. All of them are yours. I am at your service. The other pastors are at your service. The church is at your service. That's what it means for the Apostle Paul to say that the leaders of the church are yours. They exist for your benefit. So why do you boast in man? Why do you hoard? He says that the world is yours. He said that he says that life is yours. This present life, the future life is yours if you're a Christian. He says that death is yours. In other words, you are a conqueror of death. 
I don't, I don't, I don't know if you guys understand the specific and unique privilege of what it means to be a Christian. Later in chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul says that the church, the saints of God, are going to be the ones who are going to judge the world. Later in that verse, he's going to, he's, he's going to say that Christians, the saints, are going to judge not just man, but angels. I don't know if you guys recognize the gravity of what it is to be God's church. I don't know if we understand quite exactly what it means that all things as Christians are ours. Everything belongs to you. You see, it isn't that we have an expansive view of God. It is that we have a microscopic view of God and his possessions that he gives to his children. Everything is yours. If this passage is true, how can we be so myopic, so exclusive on specific projects, people, individuals, possessions, relationships, friendships? Megan was telling me uh, of this time when she was in middle school, when her family had uh, gone to England for a family trip, and how her and her siblings really didn't want to go. It was a trip that would have taken them through all throughout England. Uh, they would have gone to places like Stonehenge. They would have seen Big Ben. Uh, they would have seen the Rosetta Stone. And yet, uh, feigning sickness, uh, they ended up staying in the hotel while their parents were out watching VH1 and MTV on TV. And I don't even know if like you guys even know what VH1 or MTV is. It's like the equivalent of like, actually, I don't even know what the equivalent is. I don't know what it is. Anyway, the point, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that the Corinthians are splashing and playing with water in a muddy pool without realizing that the entire ocean was in front of them. It's what C.S. Lewis says when he says that our Lord would find our desires not too strong, but too weak. I think how we view God is a tiny bit too small. And therefore, we view his gifts just a tiny bit too small. The point that the Apostle Paul is making is that through Jesus the Messiah, we have literally become God's heirs. Why else does Jesus say, blessed are the meek? Because they're going to be inheriting the entire world. To possess everything. But even then, even then, That is not our greatest freedom. To possess everything isn't even the greatest of freedoms that God has given to us. Take a look at verse 23. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. One of my favorite things to read right now is uh, is catechisms. I know it's kind of boring. Um, Most of you should know what catechisms are because I've been uh, talking about catechisms in our newsletters. Uh, but if you guys don't know what catechisms are, catechisms simply are collections of questions and answers designed to help you remember the historic core doctrines of the Christian faith. And one question, one, one question that I've been, that I've been really sitting on, that I've been really thinking about, um, is, is actually the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. It asks the reader, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is, that we are not our own, but belong 
body and soul, both in life and death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is that has just been sitting with me this entire week. That I belong to God. That I belong to the Savior who loved me and gave himself up for me. That is the greatest freedom. Greater than possessing the whole, the whole creation is the fact that you are deeply loved by God and safe in his possession. That is the bedrock of what, it, of what really matters in this life and the next. And that is the cure for spiritual myopia. What does it even mean that all things are yours? I wish I had more time to talk about it because I'm running out of time and I really do want to respect your time, Audrey. But all things being yours at the very, le- at the very least means that all things in this life exist for your good and for your benefit. All things in this life exist for your good and for your benefit. Now, notice something here. He says, actually, death is yours too. It means that death in some way only serves you. You are not possessed by death. Actually, in fact, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul will say that death is actually the last enemy. And here in chapter 3, verse 23, the Apostle Paul says, even death is yours. Everything exists for your benefit. I, I really wish we had more time to tease this out. So another, uh, another specific application. To focus on just one pastor, one counselor, one person, is to miss out on the benefit and good of all. Why do you want just one person or two people or this one group when you have the whole church, when you have this entire high school group here, this entire high school group exists for your benefit. They exist to serve you. Don't be so myopic, Christian. Don't you see that you inherit the whole world? I want you guys to turn to Romans 8. I know it's been a lot of Bible flipping, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to land the plane here. It's just one book back, but in Romans chapter 8, as you're turning there, I want to point out how uncanny the, the, parallel, the parallels are between this passage and Romans 8. Take a look at verses 35 to 39. And as you, as you turn to this, this is what it means to belong to God. If you do not belong to God, I want you to see that this could be yours. This promise is yours. It could be yours. Verses 35 to 39, Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or, or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the blessed hope of what it means to belong to God. And a question I want to ask you guys, well, not a question, but really it's it's a crossroads. You can either be owned by other people 
by the opinions of other people. You can be enslaved to what people think of you, or you can be owned by Jesus. You can remain shackled to hopelessly chasing after the fleeting values of this world, or you can follow Jesus into a life of freedom and joy where the value of your life is no longer defined by what you can do or what others think of you or who your friends are, but by what God and Messiah has done for you on the cross. It's kind of funny that we um, talk about following Jesus as if it was a hard choice. Like, should I follow Jesus? Should I not? And while I don't want to minimize the real difficulty of following Jesus, I think we're missing the big picture here. I think we've really gotten myopic in our vision here. The big picture is that we really blew it. We are rebels against God. We are, we are nobodies, deserving nothing but hell. And yet, in the foolishness of God and at great cost to himself, God came to die on a cross for nobodies. Switching places with us, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that we can be reconciled back to God. Reconciled with one another. That is the reality. How can we not follow Jesus into this life of freedom and joy? Father, I think sometimes that we, we look at the good gifts that you've given to us and we get so focused on just one small facet of it without realizing the whole. And Lord, I, I, I wish I had more time to talk about this. But God, I, I, I hope And I pray that your spirit would be working in the hearts of the students and the staff here, that they would really consider what it really means to be a people who belong to Jesus, the Messiah. To really believe that all things are theirs. And I do pray that that would really affect and shape and change the way that they look at everything, that they look at the way that they look at creation, the way that they look at their friendships, the way that they look at their relationships, the way that they look at the people sitting around them. That all are theirs. Because we are yours. And so God, we thank you for that great privilege that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to you, our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you and we love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.